I'm Jen Psaki. Welcome to Diplopod. My colleague Jared Blanc stood in for me this week to interview Congressman Elliot Engel, chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. They talked about the priorities for the new Democratic majority on foreign relations issues. Uh, I'm here with Representative Elliot Engel, the new chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us. Uh, You've just finished a presentation downstairs for the Carnegie Endowment. It's available online, and I would strongly urge everyone to take a look at it. I think it lays out a terrific view of Democratic priorities in the House of Representatives on foreign affairs over the course of the next two years. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. A lot of uh, bright people in the audience, they ask some good questions. You really have to know your policy because they're so smart. We get a great crowd here. Absolutely. Um, I want to start with a big picture question, which is that uh, over the last three – the last three presidents that the United States has elected have all run on platforms of a kind of disengagement, a step back from the world. That's certainly true of President Trump and his kind of pugnacious isolationism. It was true of President Obama and – uh, his critique of the blob. And it was also true, people forget, of uh, President George W. Bush before 9-11. In light of the American people's apparent desire reflected through these elections to reconsider our place in the world, can you give me a sense of where are you, where's your committee, where is the Democratic Party on a positive view, a positive agenda for America's role in the world? Well, I, I think it's very important uh, for us to continue being the leaders of the free world. It's not just a matter of the United States wanting to be on top. I mean, I I believe everything that I learned and that I see in terms of our democracy, uh, in terms of how how different, how blessed we are. And I don't don't mean to sound corny, but but we are. Uh, We we take things for granted. Uh, We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of, of, of so many different things. And I believe that as leaders of the free world, uh, we have a lot to continue to share with the world. And I don't think that we should uh, patch, uh, push that away or, or, or try to uh, walk away from it. And that's one of the problems I have with the criticisms emulating from the administration about uh, our alliances being more of a burden uh, than, than a help. I think it's, it's it maybe a burden to some degree, but it's a help to a greater degree. And after all, uh, I would like to see the freedoms that we have here. Um, I'd like to see other people around the world have the same opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a perfect society and that we, don't, we shouldn't uh, continue to, to grow and change you know, in a positive way. But I do think that the principles of that Constitution and the things that we, we do uh, are something that uh, uh, makes us uh, unique and uh, allows us to lead. And I think those alliances are very important. And, and I want to get more into the critique that you've pointed to of uh, President Trump's approach to alliances and approach to the world. But before we get to the critique, I want to come at that same issue from a, a little bit of a different direction and ask, is there some part, one element of President Trump's kind of foreign policy iconoclasm that you look at and say, you know, here's an opportunity. This is something we can build on, even under a future Democratic president, I would like to see this as a door for reconceptualizing some some part of the way we make foreign policy in the United States. Well, I, I, I do think that um, we need a, a bit of a reset uh, in in our in our politics and our government. I, I think that uh, we should not be um, opposed to a president 
who comes from the opposite party, be it Democrat or Republican, just because of the politics. We, we need to find common ground uh, and come together on, on issues. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, the way we are handling the situation in Venezuela now, uh, I, I think is, is so far the right way. Um, I think that uh, there are other alliances that we have that we are uh, working closely with. Um, it would be better if we could uh, use uh, foreign policy, external threats against our country, as a way of uh, coming together and, and breaking away from the political mold. But um, these are uh, very difficult times, and uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, fighting uh, you know, inter-party and intra-party, and I think that that's uh, something that we need to, uh, to look at someday and, and maybe kind of walk it back a little bit. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, so uh, your first hearing is going to be, uh, in, in the chair, is going to be on the Arabian Peninsula uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia, the war in Yemen. What are you trying to accomplish, both specifically in that first hearing, but also in that area of policy? Well, a lot of people, first of all, have uh, expressed uh, through the through the months and years uh, dismay at what was uh, what is going on in Yemen. Uh, it's a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, there are people starving to death. There are people uh, who can't live with the. Uh, situation uh, can't stay alive. Uh, there have been uh, bombings, uh, wanton bombings of uh, children and, and civilians and school buses and things like that. And while I, I do think that uh, there are uh, legitimate uh, difficulties uh, in terms of combating uh, Iranian uh, mischief in the area, I don't think that means that we can give a blank check uh, to somebody combating uh, Iran's uh, mischief by allowing them to not care about who these bombs happen to fall on. So while I, I do share the, the, the general view of uh, stopping uh, Iran from uh, embracing terrorism in that area, um, I do think that we can't just say, well, okay, well, everything is... Uh, is fine, uh, everything is uh, is great, and just give them a blank check. And so uh, I think we're going to look at all aspects of it because it came up, it also came about as a result of, uh, of terrorist groups, and I think we have to put everything in perspective. But right now, what's what's happening in, in Yemen is is just disgraceful, and is not something that I think we should just walk idly by and not look at it. It's something that we need to focus on and hopefully make a change and save some lives because what I've seen these, these past months and, and years uh, are just not uh, easy to take. Um, uh, staying in the Middle East for just a, just a moment, you've got uh, an incredibly diverse caucus this year. You've got a freshman class of Democratic representatives who are diverse in terms of their uh, gender, ethnic origin, sexual identity, their experience before coming into Congress, and also very, very diverse about their policy perspectives, their ideology. Specifically on Israel, how are you going to manage this, I think, unusually wide range of views within the caucus? Well, I'm going to manage it the way I've always have. Um, I am a very strong supporter of the state of Israel, but I also believe that the best way to ensure uh, peace and stability for Israel and 
in the Middle East is to have a two-state solution. Uh, Israel has very legitimate security needs uh, that can be met, and uh, they are a very important partner to the United States. Uh, I believe that there should be two states uh, side by side, a, a, an Israeli Jewish state and a Palestinian Arab state, and uh, Israel's legitimate security needs need to be taken into account because of the of terrorism and, and all the things that the Palestinians, unfortunately, have used for years. It's really set them back. And if you, you look at the Palestinians, uh, the people, the poor people, have suffered, uh, I think, mainly because of a lack of leadership on their part. There were at least uh, two times when Israel was, was ready to make a deal, once with uh, uh, Ehud Barak as prime minister and once with uh, another prime minister who came afterwards, and uh, Ehud Olmert, and uh, both times the Israelis said yes and the Palestinians uh, said no. So um, I think that um, uh, people are entitled when they get elected to Congress to have their own views on things. I respect other people's views. I think we always have to be respectful, but I think that um, we have to also understand that uh, there's also all well, there are new people coming in, and we really we really cherish new people, new blood, new new ideas, new thoughts. Uh, it propels our party forward. There are also people who have been here for a number of years who also have good ideas, and uh, I think that those ideas should be discussed. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, I'm happy. I'm obviously happy we're in the majority. And I think there are a lot of talented people, and there are going to be disagreements from time to time. Um, that's just what you have in a free society. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, you, you've talked about Iran. You've talked about the importance of maintaining our alliance relationships. I want to draw those together a little bit. Um, uh, Democrats have been very critical of President Trump's approach to Iran and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Even uh, Democrats like yourself who voted against the JCPOA in 2000. Uh, and 15 have not found much to like about the way that President Trump has tried to dismantle it. And I think one of the sharpest critiques has been moving away from the JCPOA without support from our allies and partners is not a way to build up U.S. strength and sort of find a way to contain the the elements of Iranian uh, policy that we're most concerned about. Um, I think that the same argument can be made maybe even doubly so as regards sanctions in Russia where there's such a deep web of commercial and economic relationships between Europe and, and Russia. Uh, but um, there's overwhelming vote in the House uh, to, um, to, to try to block President Trump's effort to lift sanctions on Rusal and EN plus uh, uh, aluminum giants owned by uh, um, uh, Russian uh, Oleg Deripaska um, despite – a very, very strong uh, push from our European allies and partners saying, look, if these sanctions were to come into place, they would hurt us more than they would hurt their targets in Russia. So can you help me square the circle? How do we – how do you work with the Europeans on one issue and not the other? Well, there's several questions there. Uh, let, me, let me first say that um, when we slap sanctions in the Congress on, on a country, we do it because – uh, it's proven time and time again that they were doing things detrimental to us and, uh, and uh, the strong feeling that we need to show them and they need to, to pay a price for it. Um, and I think that's certainly the case with, with Russia. Um, I would hope that eventually our relationship with Russia would be better. 
But uh, I don't see that as long as Putin is around. And what makes Russia uh, so, what makes uh, some of us so angry about Russia is the interference in the 2016 presidential election. It was more than an interference in supporting individuals. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was less of that and more of going right at our jugular, uh, the heart of our democracy. And uh, people like myself feel very strongly about it, and I know a lot of other people do as well, that this is not something that can easily be forgiven. And, uh, and Putin has shown no sign of any kind of remorse or all he does is deny and uh, you know, lies about it. So um, the JCPOA, which I was opposed to for a number of reasons, and if you boil it all down, uh, I didn't think it, uh, it prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. I thought it, was, uh, it, it delayed it, uh, but it didn't prevent it as it was being billed, and I, I didn't feel it was worth it. And uh, I, I thought that the money we would uh, be uh, giving to Iran uh, Iran's the, the leading uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the world. A lot of that, that money would go to terrorism, and I was not comfortable with that. But we lost, and it became a law. And um, I think that there's a problem if every time we elect a different president, that president tries to undo what the previous president did. And uh, when we have our allies, our strongest allies, like, like the U.K. and uh, Germany and France, all uh, begging us not to uh, to get rid of it, not to get rid of the JCPOA because um, it would isolate us from our allies. Uh, I think a whole other issue comes into play, and that's the, our alliances. And I think there are times, you know, we, we have to leave, but there are times we have to work with our closest allies. And I just did not think that that was something that uh, we should uh, just discard uh, we have to work with our allies, and they, they, they're giving us advice. And I think that I, I want to isolate Iran. I don't want to isolate the United States. And, and can we do the same? Can we work with our allies as regards the, the sorts of economic pressure that we want to build against Russia for exactly the reasons that you've identified? Sure. And that's why uh, so many of us found it important that, uh, that this, this deal would, uh, would go through. Um, there, there are two sides to every coin. It's very, very rarely that you get uh, truth and justice 100% on one side or the other. But I think the, the, the biggest principle, uh, because of what Russia has done in the past few years with our attempting to dis, uh, hurt our democracy, um, I tend to be a lot less uh, um, uh, kindly uh, towards uh, Russian oligarchs and uh, all the people that uh, want to destroy our, uh, our our presidential system. Mr. Chairman, uh, there, there's been a lot of thinking in Congress over the course of the last couple of years, more than I think in, in many years, about nuclear weapons. Uh, you've written recently with your colleague, uh, Chairman Smith, uh, about um, the uh, INF Treaty and arms control more generally. Um, uh, other members of Congress have talked about uh, whether or not there should be a, a, a law prohibiting the first use of nuclear weapons by the United States or other efforts to, in some ways, constrain the president's discretion, not just this president, but any president's discretion about these uh, ultimate weapons. Um, what can this Congress do across this, this wide range of very, very important issues? Well, you know, 
this first use of nuclear weapons is um, is is a is a problem because you you look, look can look at it from two sides. Um, of course, I hope and pray we never get into a nuclear war, and I certainly uh, believe that it would never be the United States who would who would start a war. Um, but I do believe that uh, when you are dealing with adversaries, you don't take things off the table unilaterally. So I'm not quite sure that the smart thing to do would be to announce what we're going to do or not do ahead of time by legislation. On the other hand, we're talking about serious things. And so it's really just a, you know, a, a balance. I'm, I'm, of, I'm of two minds on this. I really, uh, we're going to look at this a, a little bit more because I, I do think that uh, uh, anti-first strike is probably a good idea, but I don't want it to uh, hurt us on the uh, on the other end where uh, a belligerent uh, country takes advantage of us. And on, and on arms control uh, from a negotiated perspective rather than from a, a, a unilateral change in policy perspective? On arms control? Yeah. How, how, do you, how does this Congress interact with an administration that has that, yeah, I mean, on arms control issues is being dominated by people who have a, a lifetime commitment in opposition to arms control. Well, it's a problem. Um, that's why I think it's very important that Congress um, play a very uh, vibrant role in, in formulating uh, this kind of policy, that we shouldn't just leave it to the administration. I mean, we're going to have a new administration every four years or every eight years. Congress is ongoing. Uh, I, I just think that uh, Congress needs to reassert itself. In, in the years that I've been in Congress, um, I have seen a, uh, a lessening of Congress's involvement. We haven't declared war since 1941, uh, and yet we've been involved in all these different wars. Um, we have an AUMF, which was put in, you know, in a, uh, put in right after the 9/11. Uh, horrific uh, things, um, and now all administrations have been using it as a blank check. They can, they can do whatever they want because we have a 2001 AUMF. Uh, these are issues that Congress is going to have to gra gra uh, grapple with. Um, this is not something I believe that that's healthy at all for our, for our system of checks and balances. We, we, we have ceded so much power to the, uh, to the executive branch that we are, you know, rendering ourselves almost, you know, impotent. And that is not a position uh, that we should be in, in my opinion. And again, I, I really want to encourage our listeners to check out your full presentation at Carnegie, uh, where I think you, you, you laid out a very strong case for this rebalancing between the legislative and the executive. Um, on that topic, uh, Obviously, one thing that I think a lot of Democratic constituents are looking for is investigations into the Trump administration. Uh, just uh, today, I'm not sure what day this is going to be released, but today in our interview, um, there's been an announcement that the uh, um, tr the Trump's inaugural committee has been subpoenaed by the Southern District of New York. Um, your committee has reestablished an oversight and investigation subcommittee, uh, which had previously lapsed. Um, I think. There's a lot of concern about you know, how do you balance these investigative demands in Congress, um, especially when they come to the, the uh, fear or a risk that 
there might be some influence on policy, right? So the the subpoena for the inaugural committee seems to be about uh, foreign funds, foreign influence. How do you look into those questions uh, as they might relate to, to present policy issues without stepping on the investigators? Well, first of all, um, the Foreign Affairs Committee has always had uh, a subcommittee for many, many years involving investigations. We didn't... Um, uh, some of the papers got it wrong. Uh, we, we didn't uh, uh, eliminate something else and put it there. Uh, each subcommittee has a, um, a, a location and some, some issues that it, that it deals with. And so we just did a reconfiguration of, of some of the committees. But the, uh, the, the committee of an investigatory uh, subcommittee uh, was, has always been there. Um, we just moved it to some other places. But uh, I do think, uh, again, that it's Congress's role to investigate who, whoever uh, the uh, administration is. Um, we, we have an obligation because it's, it's gotten so far out of hand in terms of decisions made by the, uh, by the executive, by the president of the United States and the administration vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Congress. And this isn't the only the criticism of this administration. It's a criticism of all the administrations. Um, you know, if, if, if Congress is going to hand them things on a silver platter and they're going to take it, you know, God bless them. I, I can't fault them for doing that. I fault us in Congress for allowing that to happen. Um, you know, if we're going to war, we should have a declaration of war, not uh, kind of hide behind an AUMF and sort of say, okay, whatever the president does, we're going to look the other way. That's not good policy. That's not what we should be doing. That's not checks and balances. It's not the way our Constitution was written. And uh, again, there's no uh, uh, attempt to get at this administration more so than any other administration, just to kind of change the mix and, and, and change the balance. I, I think that's very important uh, to do. Um, again, if I look at the years I've been in Congress, uh, there's definitely been a, a, a rush to give more power to the president and the chief executive. We want the president to succeed, but we're not a dictatorship. We are you know, a co-equal branch of government, the, the, the Congress is, and we ought to act it. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I want to thank you so much again for coming and taking the time with us. I think on, on that note, that really describes probably your next two years. Uh, so thank you very much for kicking it off here at Carnegie. My pleasure. Thank you. Diplopod is a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Subscribe to Diplopod on popular podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash diplopod. Tim Martin is our audio engineer. Lauren Duick is our executive producer. I'm Jen Saki. Thanks for listening.